Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Today's uh, conversation is with Dr. Myers. Dr. Michael Myers is Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University in Brooklyn, New York, and a former Vice Chair of Education and Director of Training in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. And he spent his career caring for physicians and their families and addressing issues of clinician distress and how individuals can can fix it. Um, his most recent book is Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, a Memoir. And as it's apt to happen in my life, I was off doing an emergency surgery and so missed the talk with Dr. Myers, but Wendy uh, did a superb job of uh, carrying it by herself. And we had talked about it a whole lot before, so I was disappointed that you couldn't make it. You're, we're both looking forward to having you there. Um, I also need to just make a mention that I misstated a couple of dates. I said that the first case in New York was May 1st, and colleges evacuated their students on May 16th, but we all know that um, it was much sooner. So um, those things happened on March 1st and March 16th. So why don't we have a listen? Dr. Michael Myers, I want to thank you for coming in and speaking with us today. Um, I asked you to come and have this conversation because I think you have a really interesting perspective from the career that you've had over several decades. Um, so can you just share a little bit about how you've, how you practiced? Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here and I appreciate this opportunity to, to talk with you and, and share something that's been uh, so very important to me through the bulk of my career. Um, I was, uh, after I finished my residency training in psychiatry, I embarked on a 35 year career. And the, it was always the same, half-time private practice and half-time academic work. And this was in Canada at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. And um, so as I said, I did that for 35 years. Um, what I noticed is that after about the first 10 to 15 years, I was getting so busy with referrals of medical students and physicians and their family members that I made the decision to close my practice completely to everyone but medical students and physicians and their family members. Um, that was a big decision, but it was crystallized by a phone call that I received at that time, learning that a colleague of mine who I didn't know too well, but uh, I heard or through this phone call that she had taken her life. And I knew that she had bipolar illness, but she was terrified to go for help. It all, all rooted in stigma. And that was the clincher for me where I decided the next day I'm going to really delve into this subject deeper and deeper and only look after, as I say, medical students, physicians and their family members. And so that's what I did right up until 2008. Uh, and at that point was when I moved from Vancouver, British Columbia to New York uh, to take uh, a full-time ac academic position here at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University. So, so what is it that you do at SUNY Downstate? Uh, I've got a number of things that I do here. It's largely teaching and research. Um, it, it's a little bit arbitrary, but I sort of divide up the two days uh, to spend here in the Department of Psychiatry, and that's teaching residents and fellows a number of didactics in various aspects of psychiatry, 
especially there's two or three that I'm especially uh, dedicated to teaching, which is a lot about suicidology, uh, including physician suicide, uh, but also um, a lot of the psychotherapy didactics. So in addition to that, though, I do miscellaneous things like interview applicants to our program, uh, you know, coming into psychiatry and to the fellowships. The other day, I spend mostly working out of the dean's office. I serve on the uh, medical student admissions committee. And so in addition to interviewing applicants to our medical school, I'm often tasked with interviewing those applicants who openly disclose in their personal statement that they struggled with some type of psychiatric illness in the past, and they've been mm -hmm. transparent about it. And of yeah. course, we want to make sure that they get a fair shake. And so that's why I, as a psychiatrist, uh, interview them. And the second thing I do is that I'm the ombudsperson for our medical students, meaning that any medical student who's confronted any type of mistreatment in their four years with us, then um, that comes through my office as ombudsperson, and I investigate and resolve those uh, concerns. Um, those are really critical jobs right now. Um, uh, having especially heard from medical students this past year, um, both both how challenging the, the year has been with COVID um, and also how challenging the match was this year. Um, those are both really, you have your hands full with those two. <laughs> A labor of love. Exactly. I'm, I'm grateful to know that there's somebody in those positions. Um, so one of the things that um, I have been thinking a lot about since I learned about you and the practice that you had in Vancouver was what sorts of changes you noticed in the patterns of physician distress throughout the period of your career? Happy to talk about that. As you probably know, our system is very different in Canada. Uh, with the universal health care system, socialized health care, whatever you want to call it, um, but basically a system whereby um, our, our, the payments that we make for health services are made to the government. And we are also paid by the government as, as physicians. So there's none of the sort of uh, concerns with sort of insurance companies or denial of, of things like that in between the practice of medicine and getting paid for it. So to, to just kind of put that in bold relief, um, I was paid 100% for everything I build uh, for in my mm. entire career. That's one thing. The second thing is, is that I never had to worry about my medical student patients or my doctor patients uh, having to pay privately because it's one or the other. You either are in the system and are completely paid you know, through government resources, or you're completely out of the system. And there are very few, but some, doctors who do practice completely out of the system and in charge uh, like privately to mm -hmm. their patients. But Canadians are so wet wedded to a universal healthcare system that even, even the most financially resourceful individual or family use the healthcare system. Now that said though, we're not without stresses in the practice of medicine because, as I've been thinking about this interview, one of the things that that has been difficult for many physicians, uh, well, there's there's a number of them, but I would say one of the things, and it depends a lot on the specialty, is the wait list to get in to see a physician. 
And mm -hmm. so you know, as a physician, that you got people waiting to see you, to speak personally. I certainly felt that as a psychiatrist. And again, that was partly why I um, excluded my practice to only looking after medical students and physicians so that I could get, in, I could get them in to see me sooner. But even with that, though, as the years went on, uh, I was so grateful to have junior colleagues that I could call up and say, look, I'm just swamped this week. Uh, is there any way that you could see? I just got a referral of a physician. I think she needs to be seen fairly quickly. Could you help out? Could you see her? That kind of thing. So, you know, I developed that because I just didn't want people sitting on waiting lists for two to three months. And that's that's not an unusual wait time in a system like that. So right. that touches on a subject of sort of, you know, moral uh, residue or moral injury, or things like that. The other is in the surgical fields where so many of patients who are waiting for often orthopedic procedures wait for a long time for a new hip or things mm -hmm. like that. Um, there's a certain kind of acceptance, I would say, among the Canadian public with that, but yet it bothers physicians. I mean, people on a wait list for so long and things like that. Um, th those would be just, you know, a couple of examples, Wendy, of things like that, that, oh, well, then I could add to that. Then we began to see burnout too. In fact, I look back uh, during the HIV AIDS crisis, I was asked to, if I would be interested, and I was, of setting up a support group for the doctors on the front lines. Um, and as you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it started in Vancouver, in Canada, but sort of about a year later than here. I mean, in, it was 1981 here in the US, probably 1982 right. in Canada. But then Vancouver sort of became the epicenter as well in the hospital there. And there were so few doctors on the front lines. And, and obviously the work that they were doing was essential and, and precious. So I started a support group and we met monthly uh, in our homes, alternating for seven years. Wow. And um, I, had, I had one rule, they weren't allowed to talk shop. Now, <laughs> that was easier said than done. <laughs> I was gonna say, that's a, that's a, that's a tall order. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at though? And it was so Correct. interesting that I found, and I've written about this, I found that the women were much better at um, leaving all of that at the hospital and to rounds and, and symposia than the men, because they were, they were ready to talk about the feelings that they were wrestling with through looking after these young patients who, as you know, were dying very quickly in those right. days, and yet the work that they were doing was still essential. This is before we had much in the way of treatment. Contagion fears were rampant. So that was, that was but I remember calling it a prevent burnout group. So that was back in the <laughs> 80s. But then, but then the term burnout really crept into the lexicon, of course, a little bit after that. And, and you read, when you look at the stats, they seem to be roughly the same, I think, in Canada as they are here in the, in the U.S., Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated to talk about um, what your what your experience has been with 
um, burnout between those two epidemics, right? between the epidemic of HIV and the and the pandemic. But at the same time, I, I really want to just touch on the COVID pandemic for a minute, because I think it's so present for so many people still. Um, what lessons did you take from the HIV epidemic when... Because you were you were right at the at the forefront of it when it when it happened before we understood what it was before we knew how to manage it better. Uh, what lessons did you take from that to support clinicians with COVID? Yeah, I thought about that a lot because toward the end of March here in New York City, March 2020, uh, when Governor Cuomo declared our teaching hospital here, University Hospital Brooklyn, as COVID only. That weekend, we sprung into gear here, and what we did, we decided we need to be we need to be prepared, because for the doctors who some of whom were being uh, redeployed, of course, some of our residents were uh, to be on the front lines. They were closing and transferring all kinds of patients, making converting making ICUs, and so we knew from the get go. So the first there were two major pillars. That we, the first one was uh, facilitating support groups. So the very next week, what we did is we set up uh, a one-hour support group for hospitalists uh, on Thursday. And on Friday, we had a one-hour support group for emergency physicians. Then some other faculty and residents started daily support groups for residents at different times of the day. So we could capture them, you know, because of their schedules. We'd re- we had support groups for medical students and then another set of support groups for the nursing staff. And those were on a, I say, a weekly basis. And so we made sure that we kind of had those up and running quickly. Um, I'm prepared to talk about that in a minute, if you like. But the other thing I wanted to add, though, is we also started something called UpDocs, which is a confidential sort of quote-unquote counseling service that can all be done online and advertise that widely for anyone who wanted to text uh, a particular number or call a number or send an email and have a confidential, largely sort of a triage type appointment uh, with anybody from our staff. This was a a bunch of us as psychiatrists and psychologists who volunteered to do this. And and that's still running. The the other groups were on pause after about three months, I would say we'd been on pause until just recently we, we've had one group just last week, and we're starting up then another group, again for hospitalists, uh, next Thursday. And, and I think we're going to combine it with emergency docs at the time. I think this is a little bit, the vo- as you know, the volume is not the same. But yet there's, we're wondering about capturing some of the individuals though, who have felt some of the long-range things that we've been concerned about. And I've noticed this in my updocs patients. Uh, those individuals with with PTSD are the ones mm. that we're you know kind of mainly mainly concerned about, right? Oh, so, and so with regard to lessons and the same sort of thing because I remember the contagion fears. Now again, they're different, they're different kind of virus and different kind of population, uh, but yet um, the and there wasn't the sort of the reticence. What I would say at the at the beginning of the AIDS. Uh, pandemic, there were individuals who wouldn't go near somebody who might be HIV AIDS, that sort of thing was here. Correct. People were basically, I would say, sort of like running in to help. It was terrifying for them, of course. 
and we, you know, all of the concerns we're hearing about about PPE and and that and means of containing whether or not they could not only get infected themselves or their colleagues and then their families. Of course, uh, you know, some of them were staying here or in nearby hotels and not going to their families except on their days off, trying to reduce the possible sort of risk of of transposing the virus and things like that. So those were those are just kind of some of the well, maybe I'll add one other, which had to do with, and I'll never forget this, it was reminding the doctors on the front lines of how much they were helping people and their relatives because they didn't necessarily feel that. And I think it's got to do, again, with the uncertainty of this virus and not being able to resort to um, conventional algorithms. You know, they right. were largely being reduced to kind of old-fashioned medicine the doctor-patient relationship, we kept reminding them of how much they were doing by showing up, by being present, by taking their their badge, their identity badge, and, and sealing it so that they could show a patient on a respirator what they looked like behind all of this mask. They were trying to reduce the, the imperson, impersonality of, you know, of this whole encounter, uh, holding phones up, FaceTiming with loved ones outside the hospital. Those were acts of kindness. I would call them acts of love. Right. Right. And I I do think that that was um, one of the challenges for folks is really staying connected to why they were there. And also, we had an an ICU physician who came on and talked about how um, when she reconnected with the idea that she knew what she was doing, that she knew how to treat these symptoms and she knew she might not know this virus, but she knew how to take care of critically ill patients was when she got some, she started to feel more confident and to feel like um, it wasn't as, it, it wasn't as chaotic for her to go to work. I totally agree. So it was, it, it really helped her to go back and say, I know what to do. I, I know how to go forward. And um, I, I think what I've seen standing on the outside um, is, is that as physicians have gotten more comfortable either in, the, either in not knowing about the virus or, or at least being more comfortable that the measures they know how to do are also effective against this virus. Not not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it's made a big difference in how they approach this pandemic. I would agree. And I've heard things like that from people I've talked to on UpDocs as well as in mm-hmm. the groups. Because as you know, it hit us so fast. Right, right. Fast. Yeah, so I, you know, I've thought a lot about what happened with, for me, last, at the end of last February, February 24th, I was, I was testifying in City Hall in New York, shoulder to shoulder with folks. Uh, yeah, on the, on the 24th. May 1st was the first patient, and May 16th, colleges were evacuating. I mean, that was three weeks, barely a blink. So it sounds like um, 
a lot of the lessons that you learned from the prior crisis you brought forward to this one. But I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about what you saw in healthcare in the interim. So the, the issues with burnout, um, how, how physician distress may have changed from 1981 through 2008. I think what I would say, and I'll, I think I'm going to start with a clinical example. Um, I, it wasn't unusual for me to get a call, and it would be sometimes not uncommonly on Monday. And it would go like this. Hey, Dr. Myers, this is Dr. Brown calling. I've been feeling kind of burned out last three months, four months, six months or so. I'm not sure how long. Pretty miserable. You know, my, I hate my job. And I'm not sure. I call it burnout, but I'm not sure what it is. It's my wife, actually, though, who thinks it's something more or something in addition. She thinks I'm depressed. And, um, and I don't know. I might be. It doesn't matter to me what we call it, but... I'm sure not feeling well. Uh, is this something you can help me with? Is this something maybe you can sort out with me? Because I don't want to make any major decisions about my job until this gets sorted out. My response was always the same, of course. Let me set up an appointment with you. And that's my job to you know, help sort this out, that sort of thing. And so very much like we're now seeing in the scientific literature, we're trying to make that distinction, of course, between burnout, the symptoms of burnout, and major depressive illness because at one level, I mean, there obviously there's overlap, but they're also very different in terms of, and I'm not you know going to the details about that, but how we distinguish burnout from symptoms of major depression. Because the last thing in the world, in fact, I've seen this happen where in through my practice actually, where an individual actually quit a program, perhaps a residency program, because he or she felt burned out and went into something else only to feel burned out again and realize that actually they've got a low-grade depression or perhaps, you know, maybe a moderately severe depression that they're just carrying from one site, you know, to another. And so, you know, obviously we don't want that to happen. And also the number of people I saw too in my practice who responded to our, even if I call it conventional, treatment for depression, which may have involved an antidepressant medication and certainly some good psychotherapy, they end up feeling better and they're so relieved that, it, that they didn't quit their job. And mm-hmm. there still, there's still may be problems within, within the workplace, but yet they'll say, but I'm better equipped now. In fact, now that I'm going back to work, I'm not back 100% yet, but I'm even sort of part of the solution because I'm on a committee where we're dealing with this and we're working with the CEO or we're working with executives or whatever to make this a healthier place to work so that we can, you know, sort of reduce or eliminate the burnout that so many doctors are struggling with here. So that was sort of like a clinical piece in, in all of this. Um, I, I also began to feel too, though, that non-medical people who were in authority, you know, either in government positions sometimes or in um, medical centers, you know, the, in the C-suite, so to speak, there's a, I felt increasingly that they were be- becoming concerned about their physicians and that 
that we're not just a bunch of workhorses that you can just keep throwing more and more either work on or a system that just isn't working, that there's too many doctors paying a price. So it wasn't unusual for me to get invited to speak with a particular group at a particular meeting or something like that. And I generally found them interested in knowing um, what our, our physician workforce was facing and what some of the things were that they were bringing to me you know, as a doctor's doctor in private practice and what those things were. So that's, that's a little bit probably of maybe primary prevention and secondary prevention in, in some regards. The other thing, too, and I know this sounds a little technical getting into tertiary prevention, but it wasn't unusual for me at any one time to have up to 10 or 12 physicians on medical leave in my practice. I may or may not have had them in the hospital. Uh, and so they're taking, of course, a little bit longer to get better and to be able to return to the workplace. So I was working with insurance companies with regard to disability, and I had to do a lot of educating that this is not about increasing their antidepressant medication higher when they right. questioned me about that. It had to do with tincture of time. It had to do with, with my um, meeting sometimes uh, with the powers that be in a toxic work environment. I certainly saw occasions where the chairs of departments or the heads of departments did not get it. They were not... The way they, the the way their leadership style was toxic, right? So what you know, I think that's really interesting because one of the things that we're seeing now is more and more and more um, physicians are coming to us saying, "I I knew what I was signing up for. I knew it was going to be long hours. I knew I was going to see difficult things. I was ready for that. What I was not ready for was." having somebody who is not familiar with the clinical workflow to be telling me how I will work, um, to have my hands tied in who I can refer patients to or what treatments I can recommend. Um, all, I know how to take care of patients, and yet there are so many barriers between me, between what I know and what I can get for my patients. I wasn't prepared for not being able to take the best care of patients. That's really what's getting at me. And I also can't, I, I can't find a way to help my organization see how important that is for its workforce. So I'm wondering if you can, and, and, and that's, what, that's what we started calling this moral injury, as opposed to burnout, which is being, being um, asked to do more than you have resources for. Right. So it's 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 more that conflict between what are what are the business ethics and the business goals of a hospital or a healthcare system and what are my ethics as a physician and my goals for my patient coming into conflict. And so I'm I'm wondering uh, if that's also something that you're seeing increasingly. I, I'm seeing it here. Yes. <clears throat> And even though I'm not in private practice, I do, I've got a, a, a couple of other <clears throat> lenses on this. Uh, one is that I am asked to, to give talks, various types of talks. They range all the way from, oh, wellness during the COVID pandemic, for instance, or it could be, you know, how do you distinguish between, you know, burnout, moral injury, 
depression, PTSD, things like that. But I'm also, I also know of this though, through um, individuals that I'm asked to assess for our committee for physician health, which is our physician health program for the state of New York. And I do a number of independent medical evaluations of those doctors. And I certainly see it there. And they, in fact, Wendy, they talk just as you've just quoted physicians that you've interviewed or who have spoken to you, same sorts of things. If I would, if I could only be allowed to practice what I was taught to do, uh, spend more time with my patients to have, you know, that I didn't have to feel like I'm a tread on a treadmill where I wasn't so, where I didn't have to practice such defensive medicine, these kinds of things that are so wearying and that other one too, about being denied insurance coverage for a patient or access to this or that or whatever by somebody who they feel and they say, look, I'm not trying to be elitist, but they don't know, you know, like this, this, this just really, really troubles me. And so those are the kinds of that they wear on people and as you know, can make them ill. And I really like the way that, well, both you and Simon have conceptualized this, that burnout maybe is at one level a constellation of symptoms but it's the moral injury that is driving this in so many, many cases. And so that's how I see it here. When I, when I was in Canada, there was a, there, there was a, a, a sense, but the, the denial, though, had more to do with government resources or something. And that's why, for instance, we all thought very clearly about who we are putting in um, physicians who are being elected to represent us in those negotiations. I mean, they just had to be tough. There was no way about it. Right. And they also had to be the mouthpiece for struggling physicians. And sometimes I would see it too in small rural communities where there was a shortage of mm. physicians and especially a specialist or subspecialist who really, really was on call seven days a week. Right. And when they when they took vacation, if they took vacation, any emergency had to be evacuated out of that community. Right. But I can remember going to bat for some of it. They said, you, you have to take time away. You just have to. Well, I think what you're what you're talking about in both of those instances is knowing is the physician knowing that someone has their back. That someone is there to support them, whether it's the their leadership who's fighting the battles for them so that they can, to facilitate their care, um, the care of their patients, whether it's a colleague who can step in when they need to take a break, whether it's a system that's in place so that if they don't have backup, the system, that system shifts when they go away so that it, it isn't a burden. It isn't um, on them to make to make those adjustments or to make those arrangements so that they can get time off. It automatically happens. We anticipate it's going to happen. We've prepared for it. So in that way, we're going to take care of you. You just tell us when you go and that we'll enact that system. I love your use of the term, has my back. As a, you know, <laughs> as you know, we also call it advocacy. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're both psychiatrists. I learned the importance of advocacy even before I went into psychiatry. Um, the, my most recent book uh, is called Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, a memoir. 
And I start that book uh, with uh, describing the loss of my medical student roommate to suicide. Uh, when mm. we, were, we were both first-year medical students in 1962. And from Bill's death on, I realized that there's a lot here that needs to be addressed and, and spoken. I wasn't, I didn't have the confidence to do it so much right then. And also the stigma associated with any kinds of illness in medical students or physicians back in 1962. Well, it was so profound, it was almost unspeakable. Right. When this happened in medical school or beyond, it was the, the thought was that we made a mistake letting this person into medicine. Because it was only, it was really the beginning of the 1970s that the physician health movement sort of slowly began through the AMA in the late 70s, mm -hmm. that, that type of thing. Prior to that, doctors who, you know, who succumbed or died were just seen as misfits or couldn't, right. couldn't cut the mustard. I mean, it's horrible when we think of that piece of history. And, and we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go because the, the, stigma, is, the stigma is still pretty significant. As, as, as hard as we are uh, trying to fight that, we still have a long way to go. So aside from making it easier for physicians to get access to support and care for themselves, um, and having people who can advocate for them or have their backs. What are the other things that you think we need to do for, for physicians right now or in the future, over the longer term? There's all kinds of things. Um, I, this is why I get encouraged by the kinds of work that you and Simon are doing in your, your whole group. Um, because it's so, it's so fundamental. It's so... I think, essential. Um, and again, I was using the terms earlier about primary prevention. These are the kinds of things that there's got to be those kinds of changes. So when I look at the efforts, for instance, of NOM, the National Academy of Medicine, there's just so much going on there. When I look at the phenomenal work that um, Corey Feist and uh, Jennifer Breen Feist have been doing since the death of Dr. Lorna Breen. Right. Actually, about a year ago now. It's almost exactly a year uh, since she died by suicide. The work that they're doing and continue to do, and through their foundation with Congress, um, I it, it feels to me, too, that there are two other groups that are... I think beginning to pay attention. This again has to do with the systems having to do with this, the systems about and whether this has got to do again with the CEOs, the executives. You know, uh, I mean, I can't speak to that a lot. But after the the book that I did three years ago on physician suicide, I did a lot of interviews and podcasts with those groups about the risk of physicians in our, of, of, of killing themselves, like with our, in, in our system as it was. And of course, the other group is the Federation of State Medical Boards. In the work that we've been doing, and, and many of you, I'm sure you're aware of, is trying to get those questions changed 
uh, right. in some states that are clearly discriminatory and they're terrifying for, well, two groups, physicians who have sought psychiatric help in the past or currently are, or are considering it. Right. And one of the, one of the horrific things that I learned in the, res- the post-mention research that I did interviewing family members and colleagues of doctors who had died by suicide was roughly the, the, my cohort of almost 100 physicians, roughly 10 to 15% of those doctors took their lives without receiving any care. Right. No consultation, didn't go to a primary care doc, psychologist, psychiatrist, nada. Wellness, right. illness, and death. And that is unconscionable. And that kind of stuff, I think, I mean, yes, it's more complicated than that. It's not just all systems, but those are the things that that way. So, and I think, I think it's happening. It is slow. When you talked about stigma being with us, the qualifier adjective I use is pernicious. Right. It's, it's still with us as well. And there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. But what, again, now this is getting more into secondary prevention. I'm encouraged by the number of physicians who are speaking out uh, about their diagnosis or the treatment they received or whatever, because just a few can make a big difference because of the optics of this. And I saw that happen. I've had patients come to me who said, look, I've been struggling with this. I read an article by Dr. So-and-so in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I thought, oh my God, that's my story. And I saw that he almost killed himself or something like that. This is why I'm here today, Dr. Myers, that sort of thing. And I'm also looking at the medical students because they're coming up through the ranks. They are arguing, why can't we talk about our vulnerabilities? And, and, you know, they're they're kind of changing the the face of matter, the, the needle. So therefore, when you get more people speaking out about this, and the whole thesis of my memoir is doctors are human too. That's my right. take-home message. That's what I'm trying to convey. So it's really interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that happened, I worked for the DOD for about a decade, the Department of Defense. And um, one of the things that really shifted the culture around mental health care was leadership coming and saying, it is important to me that you take care of yourself and I will have your back. And, you know, I, I, think, I think one of the challenges that we have is we need hospital leadership to say, you are important to me. You, not, as, not as a cog in a wheel, not as, um, not as a revenue generator, you are important to me as a human, because until someone treats you as though you're human, you won't believe you are. And right now, we, I think we have a paucity of that. Um, so I wonder if there's, there, if there's anything that we haven't touched on today. You know, as a good psychiatrist, I'll ask that question. <laughs> um, is there anything that we haven't talked about? that you think is important for our listeners to hear? I think we've touched on it. You have and I have. Because I think both you and I have such respect 
or reverence for our brothers and sisters in medicine. And we're prepared to do what we can or try or assemble people or speak out and make a difference. And right. when we have sometimes like, whether you want to call it the privilege of, of uh, age or the privilege of experience or whatever, that we have some authority to our voice, I, I think it's essential that we, that we do that. And I've heard so many senior physicians say, look, I don't have that much time left. I'm just going to really, I'm just really going to let it fly. And here's what I feel we need. And I don't care if I'm upsetting anyone. You know, I've got nothing to lose anymore or something like that. I love to hear that, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so the other thing to it is, I think, as you know, one of the, one of the, what are the statements or whatever that's been coined uh, through the pandemic has been, we're all in this together. And I certainly feel that in medicine. And I do really see us as a, a great big collective. You could call it a big family. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm so inspired by so many physicians who I meet in all, in all kinds of positions. I mean, they could be well and they could be in some kind of a leadership position and that's great. But also to, you know, when they fall into their knees and I'm doing my best to, you know, to help them and to see their courage and their dignity. Um, one, of the, one of the points I made in my book, I put a whole chapter in of, you know, what my doctor patients have taught me. Mm-hmm. And one of them is, is humility. Because right. I, have, I have borne witness to some unbelievable things that have certainly made me a better person. Uh, by, by, you know, by holding a doctor's hand and helping them through that very, very dark place through their journey of healing. Very inspirational women and men in our field. Right. I think that's a great place for us to wrap it. And um, thank you so much for joining us. And good luck with your work. And... Give us a link for your book so that we can put it in the show notes. And thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Well, Wendy, Dr. Myers is the kind of doctor I, I, I love. Um, you know, here's somebody who obviously had a tragedy that started in his medical school with his, his roommate uh, dying from suicide. And he leverage that into a career of helping other doctors and um you know any doctors on the call are of course going to be grateful for someone who's done that um my question for you is how did you connect with dr myers where did you meet him so it was recommended that i meet him by jane kim who was on one of our previous episodes and he was also recommended by another person that i was talking to through the new york health and hospitals so it was one of those situations where two people recommended that I meet him, which meant that I had to meet him. So <laughs> Right, it's a pretty good sign when right? everybody says you've got to meet someone. <laughs> right. Now, I, I'm fascinated um, where he started his career, obviously in Canada, in a quote-unquote socialized health system. And he, of course, had some positive things to say about it and some negative things to say about it. And I think that's a really, really important point to make because as we go through talking about health system change as part of system change, as part of moral injury mitigation, 
one of the things that people often say is, well, why don't you just have a socialized health system that would fix everything? And as he mentioned, you know, the payment side of things is simpler. The structure of uh, receiving healthcare is simpler in some ways, but there are also some problems like the long wait lists. And I think that um, brings up the idea that the, the, there is no perfect system um, to fix this. Yeah, there's no perfect system. And, and what we need to be really careful about and what we often don't do when we're designing new systems is to really think about what are those unintended consequences that we're going to run up against. So thinking not just about what are we going to fix from the old system, but what new problems might we create with a new one? Yeah. You know, another really interesting thing that he uh, he came up with was the idea of community and the idea of uh, community in the HIV epidemic as being one of the things that um, was it was sort of a, a blueprint for how to handle these things. Um, you know, we've spoken about community as being one of the sort of three pillars of trying to uh, mitigate these issues. What do you think of that? I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think if we don't start paying more attention to who has our back, where we work, um, being able to support those who are around us, those who are across from us, um, I I don't know how we're going to get to better. Right. I think that's a really important part of having a successful workplace. And it's so nice to hear that coming from somebody whose entire job is treating physicians with with uh, problems. Mm-hmm. The, the next part of that is is that uh, Dr. Myers spent a bit of time talking about the fact that when he sees people who are either coming in with symptoms of burnout or symptoms of depression. Um, or troubled in some way or another, he talks about the toxic work environment as being one of the drivers of that and one of the things that a lot of these people are struggling with and how there's only so much that uh, you can do when you're in that environment. Um, I just thought that was uh, something that will hit home with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) there is no medication that will fix a toxic work environment. Just like there's no amount of running that will make it better. There's no amount of healthy eating that will make it better. So while we need to pay attention to the folks who would really benefit from mental health care, I also think that it doesn't let the environment off the hook. Of course. So that brings us to solutions. And solutions was definitely something that, you know, we're always trying to get to. Dr. Mai spoke a lot about systems change and systems issues. And one of the things which was a really tangible solution that he spoke about was uh, dealing with the Federation of State Medical Boards and trying to get uh, the idea of discrimination against mental health in our licensing dealt with. And finally, I think the thing that was really telling is here's somebody who deals with physicians all the time, and here's someone who's a physician himself who says that, you know, part of it is getting people to realize that doctors are human too. And it really is astounding that, mm-hmm. that such a simple uh, cognition, such a simple concept, uh, is often completely forgotten about, even by ourselves and our colleagues. Right. Yeah, and and that's the whole that's the whole double edged sword of being a hero in the pandemic. Right? Is um, it doesn't let you be human. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm all for that. Our next episode wraps up Mental Health Awareness Month, and we're going to be speaking with Mona Masood, who is the founder of Physician Support Line, which he stood up almost overnight to deal with uh, the issues of, of physician support during the pandemic. 
That's going to be a great conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you all for joining us for Moral Matters. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, you can go to Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare. Instagram at Moral Injury. Twitter at WDeanMD and Simon Talbot MD, or at Fix Moral Injury. So we're recording our next Ask Us Anything episode in a few weeks. So please send us your emails, send us your voice memos, uh, send them to podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. That's podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. Or let us know if there's another topic or a guest that you'd really like to hear. We'd like to know. And as always, thank you for reviewing us. Thank you for rating us. Thank you for listening to us. We are always getting a lot of feedback and we really appreciate it. It's helpful for us as we plan our shows going forward and plan who we speak to. It's just been fantastic, the support we've gotten. So subscribe to the upcoming episodes and we hope to see you then. We'll talk to you soon.